Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's podcast is a break from the usual format. I have Lucy Hodder, Director of Health Law Programs and Professor of Law at the University of New Hampshire's School of Law, back to the program to discuss the current state of health policy and some of President-elect Donald Trump's health policy proposals. You can find my interview with Lucy about her career on our website, healthleaderforge.org. The website will also have show notes about our conversation today. Thanks for listening. And here is Lucy Hodder. Welcome back to The Forge, Lucy. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be back. (laughs) I have to confess, so I was caught surprised by the election of of Donald Trump. I I had even gone so far as to tell my students I was sure that Clinton would win, and therefore health policy wasn't going to change very much. But with a Trump win uh, and his promise to repeal and replace the ACA, that's obviously a lot of potential change. So that made me want to do some sort of special podcast to talk with somebody about what might happen and what those changes might look like. And I, of course, immediately thought of you. So thanks for agreeing to talk with me about it. Terrific. Yeah, it's certainly, I think it caught many of us by surprise. And so now there are a lot of people, including myself, trying to figure out what next. So usually I have a lot of pre-scripted questions that I, uh, for my guests, but today I, I don't, I just got some notes and, and we've talked about a couple of things we might talk about. I think we had agreed we'd talk a little bit about what's going on maybe in New Hampshire as far as health policy goes and then kind of what do we know about what's been said about, about Mr. Trump's intentions and then we could maybe look at the, some of the points that he's made on his website about what his health reform agenda might look like. I think that would be great because I think one of the issues is healthcare is such a big topic. The Affordable Care Act is such a big topic and it impacts people in so many different ways. And a lot of people don't even know what's really in the Affordable Care Act. So when you talk about what's next, I think sometimes it's important for everyone to just, okay, let's look at where we are now in healthcare and what matters most to us right now is what's happening in New Hampshire. Yeah, so well, why don't we start there? And I mean, I think a lot of what's happening in New Hampshire is happening all over the country. I mean, obviously we have some, every state's got some idiosyncrasies, but I don't, I imagine we're, we're a fairly representative. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think what's important to remember is two things about the Affordable Care Act or the ACA. One is that it is primarily contains insurance reform. So it's complicated. There's a lot of changes that were passed in 2010, most of which we saw and experienced beginning in 2014 that were really all about health insurance. Who has it? How can everyone get it? But the Affordable Care Act also includes a whole host of other provisions that aren't talked about as much, you know, grants to support public health emergency, public health disasters, disease, etc. 
There's changes to the Indian health system that Native American populations fought for for 10 years. There's innovation dollars for changes in the Medicare payment program. There's changes to self-insured health benefits and requirements. There's provision that requires employers to offer employees breast milk areas so they can um, breastfeed their babies. So there's a whole number of different things in the Affordable Care Act, some of which we're familiar with and some of which just go chugging along without a lot of public review. So when there's a statement that the Affordable Care Act is going to be repealed, I think there's going to be a lot of analysis of just what what should be repealed and what should be replaced. Well, how what has been the biggest effect, in your opinion, in New Hampshire as a result of the Affordable Care Act in terms of the insurance reform and the main parts of the bill or, or law, yeah. rather? You know, what, what have you seen from your perspective? Well, you know, from our perspective, I mean, when, when I'm we're talking about health care and everybody's frustration with health care, I think it's important to acknowledge that today as we speak, there's significant frustration with individuals who have to pay a lot out of their own pocket for their health care coverage despite a whole bunch of changes that have gone into effect. There's also a lot in the news about spikes in prescription drug costs. So those are the key things that we feel, but originally the Affordable Care Act was passed because costs were skyrocketing with premiums. New Hampshire had some of the highest premiums in the country and still does. Another issue was the economy. The economy was tanking right. in, in 2009, and there were a lot of people left without jobs, a lot of people losing coverage, a lot of people because of their health issues not able to get coverage. So there was a little bit of a crisis in access. Individuals just couldn't, you know, if you had cancer and you lost your coverage, you couldn't get coverage. There was a, there was a real access to health care issue. And I think there was a frustration that there were a lot of providers and people who had insurance who were ultimately paying for a huge volume of un, uh, uninsured uh, people who couldn't afford coverage or wouldn't get coverage and were using the emergency rooms for their care. Yeah, I think um, in addition, yeah. there was, a, you know, not many people, not many benefits had addiction services, which we call substance use disorder services or mental health services, and that seems to be one of the um, illnesses that has peaked during our recession, and so that was another significant problem that we were facing back in 2010. So, so if you look at that, New Hampshire has done a number of things, many of which were required by the ACA. So New Hampshire has engaged in a partnership with the federal government around our insurance marketplace, and it actually worked pretty darn well. We started with one carrier, um, Anthem, offering coverage on the marketplace, and we now then went up to five, and for 2017, we have four different plans offering a variety of coverage plans on the marketplace. So that's one thing, and it was a pretty unique partnership. We didn't have to pay for our own marketplace exchange. We used healthcare.gov, and there are a lot of people with coverage. So of the 50,000 people approximately who have enrolled in individual coverage through our New Hampshire marketplace, 
approximately 63 to 64% of them receive tax credits from the federal government to afford that coverage, and about 36% receive cost-sharing reduction help from the federal government. There's only about 18,000 who don't receive financial support for their coverage on the marketplace. What's the difference between why why do some people get that assistance and and some people don't? What's the justification there? It totally depends on your income level. Okay. And someone who is up to four who who um, receives income of up to four hundred percent of the federal poverty level, any anywhere in that range will receive help from the federal government to subsidize the cost of their insurance. No one is allowed to to spend more than 8 or 9% of their income on insurance under the Affordable Care Act. And if you do, you get help. So in addition to that, New Hampshire decided to engage in a sort of public-private partnership around Medicaid expansion in order to allow people who are adults between 0 and 138% of the federal poverty level, allow them to access coverage. And in New Hampshire, we engaged in a really unique partnership, public-private partnership, by allowing adults who are poor to enroll in the New Hampshire Health Protection Program. And about 50,000 New Hampshire residents have enrolled in the New Hampshire Health Protection Program, and they now access their coverage through the marketplace, so they're on private plans. And there's about a number of those individuals are employed, uh, so it's really not whether you're employed or not employed. It's just how, how much income. income you have. So we've taken our um, insurance coverage. Um, we now have significantly reduced the number of people in New Hampshire who are uninsured. So when you say the New Hampshire Health Protection Program, that's actually the name of Medicaid in New Hampshire, correct? It's the Medicaid Expansion it, Program, okay. but it's, it's different from traditional Medicaid okay. in that it's Really, you receive a lump sum payment to purchase coverage on the marketplace. Okay. And that's how we expanded Medicaid in New Hampshire. That is how we expanded Medicaid in New Hampshire, yes. The goal was to try and bring as many individuals into um, commercial coverage as possible in order to help support competition amongst those carriers and also to make it offer some continuity of coverage. So if you if your work does, if you are successful at work and you move up the income level, you'll be able to continue with a similar type of coverage on the private market through the marketplace. What do you think is working particularly well in terms of the ACA, either in New Hampshire and around the, around the country, nationally? And what do you think needs improvement? So if you could fix, if you could maybe not repeal and replace, but if you could modify the ACA, where would you where would you make changes? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one of the the problems is that we haven't sort of softened the blow of a, a number of people coming onto the marketplace because of the mandate have are people who may not have had health insurance for a while. And so there are a lot of pent up needs. And that's been a little bit of a burden to the insurance companies offering on the marketplace. And I think they're, they didn't quite figure out the best way to make sure it's fair amongst all the carriers, regardless of who signs up for their coverage. So we do need to figure out how to, how to um, clear some of those bumps. You know, I think the other issue is 
Um, there's been some frustration amongst employers with regard to the Cadillac tax, which is sort of the slang name for the fact that if an employer offers benefits that are richer than the federal government authorizes, there's no longer a tax deduction for that benefit. So there's some frustration with employers that they don't have as much flexibility with regard to the benefits they offer. You know, I think in general, the other problem is we just, we have not lowered the cost of care. Uh, there's been a huge effort on the Medicare side to really push payment reform. And many would say it's working. If you look at the projections around sort of the long-term sustainability of our Medicare trust fund, we're in much better shape than we were in 2009. In fact, across the board with healthcare sustainability, we're in much better shape. We are not our, our percentage of GDP spent on healthcare is not going up as precipitously as it was beforehand. Right. So there's been a huge, you know, like stalling of, of the increases in costs and expenditures in the healthcare industry. At the same time, you know, we certainly have not done enough. And a number of, st- of states have really looked closely about how to sort of curb, monitor and curb healthcare expenditures. But, you know, it's really hard. It, it, we, we have this sort of mixed approach to healthcare, where on the one hand, we want to maintain competition and private coverage and private access and employer access. On the other hand, it's really a giant insurance risk issue, which is how are we going to pay for what we know will happen, which is that every single individual in the United States will need healthcare at some point in their lives. Right. more and more as their lives continue. And how are we going to support that? Um, no, it's not really insurance risk. It's really sort of an, uh, an overall um, coverage question. And, you know, Medicare is doing what it can to really try and figure out how do we take the health care dollar we spend, because we're sure spending enough, and use it more efficiently, direct it more to the patient need, create consumers who are a little bit more conscious with what they're buying, and what's being spent on their care. You know, how do we get from A A to Z on that and get there quickly? We're not there yet. And that's yeah. one of the major, major issues. One of the things that I, I hear and I, I read about a lot is this movement towards paying for value. And, and that's a big piece of, like, of what you were just talking about. Medicare has been setting the trend in terms of pushing for accountable care organizations that have shared savings arrangements and encouraging providers to kind of come together and, and, and work to, to provide care under those sorts of, of plans. And that is also happening with private payers. Uh, so non-governmental payers are also pushing pretty heavily for value-based purchasing of, of care. Did you see that as a trend before the ACA came into place? Somewhat. Uh, you know, unfortunately, our system before the ACA was one where we paid for services based on individual items and claims, and it's called a fee-for-service payment. It wasn't always that way. You know, we used to have managed care system in the 90s, but right. consumers didn't like how care was managed. and. Right. We moved away from it, and so we had basically a fee-for-service system. If you went to get care, every single part of the care you received was billed, 
and every single part of the care you received had, had a different type of compensation and different providers were able to negotiate more or less. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was really hard to figure out where on earth did this pricing scheme come from and what am I being billed for? Right. So I think the frustration was apparent that there was no one to put pressure on the system to change. You know, frankly, the providers were used to it and their claim systems were based on it. The insurance companies were used to it and their claim systems were based on that kind of a fee-for-service billing. So the only way to really force a system that is working well for them to change is if those purchasing it can exert enough power on the system to make them change. And I think a lot of people misunderstand uh, the concept of what free market means in the healthcare. You know, the, the healthcare spend and the relationship is between the insurance carriers and the um, providers. Right. And our, the purchasers don't have a lot of power unless they, unless they do. So, you know, that's why you see employers, you know, sort of waking up and saying, like Walmart, how are we going to make our healthcare dollar, uh, that we're spending on our employer employees' coverage um, more efficient and effective. And you see Medicare, who's a big purchaser, say, how are we going to make sure our health care dollar that we spend on covering um, uh, the elderly population is more efficient? And now you're finally seeing states in the Medicaid program really try and push towards a more efficient system. You know, the problem is all who, who are all the people in individual plans and all the small employers going to rely on to help force this pay, change? Yeah. Um, are they going to be able to band together? Are they going to rely on government? You know, who's really going to help them um, and be their voice for change in cost and delivery? So we've seen that government taking that lead with the ACA then? Yeah, that's really, so it, it'll be really interesting uh, to see how the politics play out here because, yeah. you know, I think honestly, the everybody wants the same thing. Right. <laughs> Which is a healthcare system that is uh, uses the dollars we're spending to actually get the care to the people that we need. And you know, everyone is frustrated with spending more on their care than they should have to. Um, but I think if you sit a group of people down and say, okay, I understand if you're healthy and you're young, it would be really nice if you only had to pay for the type of care you need. But what if you fell and broke your leg? What if your mother, who was dependent on you, had a heart attack? What if you saw someone lying on the side of the road who'd gotten hit by a car, you know, would you want to make sure that that person got help? And almost universally, everyone says, well, yeah. And then you have to ask the question, okay, how are you going to pay for that help? So I think everybody understands there that, that there's an issue. The, the real question is how best to pay for it more efficiently. And, you know, I think some of the, the policy options that are being thrown around by the repeal and replace movement are very blunt and some of them are really trying to push sort of solutions that we may not have been able to reach with a more sort of let's all get there together type mode. Okay. 
All right. What else? What else do you think is hot? You know, then the question is, okay, what are they what, what are they going to do? You know, the first thing on Trump's list is it does say a complete repeal. Right. But he himself has said, but wait a minute, I don't want to make, you know, insurance impossible to, to access for the American people who I now represent. And in fact, I think it's a good thing that insurance is accessible even if you have pre-existing conditions. So that's doesn't a want to change that. Yeah, so that's a guaranteed issue element and but mixed in with that first point was something about the individual mandate. What do you think of that? Absolutely. Will will he go after that or do you think or So what well, is the well what so, is the individual yeah. mandate? What what is that first? Let's let's hit that and why is that important? So the individual mandate is the obligation of everyone to purchase insurance. And it's really important, you know, especially we in our in our health law class read the sort of key Supreme Court decisions and you know that's where Justice Roberts came down, which is the the Affordable Care Act effort to make sure we ultimately can impact costs and quality and access in the healthcare system is to get everyone insurance. And the only way to do that is to first put in some reforms and we want to make everyone able to get insurance even if they have a pre existing condition. And the guaranteed issue provision means anybody can get insurance, even if you are you've been diagnosed with cancer and you have a you know a heart murmur, whatever pre-existing condition you might have, a mental illness, a substance use, you can get coverage now, and you can't be charged a higher premium because of your health condition. Right. Um, if if that's what's going to happen, and the insurance companies have to take you on regardless of how sick you are, they've got to be able to also have in that insurance pool people who are not sick or it's just going to be really expensive for them. way to make that happen is to make everyone have to get insurance. That was the hope that everybody would so that the healthy and the sick and the young and the old would all have insurance and so it would even itself out in terms of risk. This is a, when we do this, when we push people into a pool and we say insurers are not allowed to discriminate between people with existing conditions and people without existing conditions, in the past, insurers would have charged a higher rate or or would have just refused to insure people with pre-existing conditions and would have charged a much lower rate to people who were healthy. So they, they were allowed to exactly. do experience rating. Now we're doing community rating where the same price is charged to everybody in the pool. That, exactly. Now that what that results in, of course, is, is essentially a subsidy from people who are healthy to people who are ill. So, so the balancing out of the, the prices that healthy people now pay is higher, the prices that sick people pay is now lower, and we kind of – we do balance. I mean, that's the reality of community rating is we do balance that out. Exactly. People, and pe- that's frustrating for many. Yeah. Again, you know, that's sort of the, the, the story I was saying about do you help the person on the side of the road who's been hit right. by a car? I mean, that's the, that's the question. Is it a, is it, you know, how, and, and we've always in this country treated healthcare a little bit differently than, right. you know, for example, buying a vacuum cleaner. And, you know, that's one of the, the consequences, but I'm sure something that is, is going to be discussed, which is yeah. how much should the people who are healthy support the needs of those who are sicker. And there, there is, I just want to be clear, though, there is under the Affordable Care Act still the ability to charge people who are older more for their premium. So there is, there are age so bands. There, you can't there, right. rate based on age and, and the region where people are from and if they're smokers. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, so age, smoking, and then general, your literal community where you where you actually reside. Those are the three. Exactly. So if you exactly. live in a relatively unhealthy area. My, my point that I wanted to bring up, though, was if, if you're a healthy person and all of a sudden your rates go way up because you're now helping to subsidize the care for people who are already sick, you might want to not buy insurance at that point. It might not be worth it for exactly. you to buy insurance. And exactly. that's why the that's mandate is necessary. Seeing. A lot of people, a lot, you'll hear, I think people will hear this phrase, an insurance death spiral. And that's what we start to talk about when people don't buy the, when, when the healthy people aren't forced to buy the insurance. They'll, they'll jump out. It'll exactly. make costs go up even more. So there really, it just doesn't work. Uh, the model doesn't work without kind of forcing people into it. Exactly, and I think that's what you're seeing right now is there's a little bit of a death spiral happening in the marketplace in in certain other states. New Hampshire's been lucky. New Hampshire has a pretty healthy population, and frankly, our premiums were already high, but we've really, our premiums have not gone up much at all in the last couple of years in any of the market, markets, the group, small group, large group, and individual markets. So our, our premiums have not gone up. That said, out-of-pocket costs have gone up. So the average deductible is much higher now for the for anybody in any kind of plan than it was, say, five to ten years ago. They were going up substantially before the Affordable Care Act, and they're going up again. So I think that's a, a frustration with people. So I, you know, I think that there are going to be some really interesting conversations about how you help people who need health care and access to get it without being too much of a burden on those who don't. You know, again, we all know we're going to be old and sick someday. Right. Um, the question is, you know, <laughs> what are you willing um, to, um, what are you willing to do in a community uh, to deal with that? I, you know, I think people were, in, in some ways, people were com- more comfortable just saying, hey, you know, if I don't see it, it doesn't bother me as much. So if people are having to go to the ER and not get care, um, you know, I know the hospitals see it. I know the doctors see it. I know the communities and the towns see it, but it's not going to impact me as much as me seeing my premium cost each month. Right. Um, so so. One, of the, one, of the, one of the things we're seeing a lot of are these high deductible plans on, on the marketplaces. I haven't actually studied the New Ham- the, what's offered on the New Hampshire Exchanges, but my understanding is a lot of the plans that are offered are have very high deductibles relative to what we've historically seen, and that kind of goes along with, uh, you know, that's actually one of Mr. Trump's proposals is to create uh, or make available HSAs, health savings accounts that are that go along with a high deductible health plan. What's the impact of having these high deductible plans under the current arrangement? Is there a benefit to that? Is there, I mean, it's not optimal, but are there, are there impacts? Are, are you hearing any impacts that are positive maybe as a result of that? So I wouldn't say positive. I mean, I would say yes uh, for every type of individual, those in groups who work for an employer who covers them and those who are accessing on the marketplace, deductibles have gone up unless, of course, you're, you're in an income level that gets you get help for it. Right. But the average in a fully insured group, the average deductible in New Hampshire is about 2900 bucks. That's a lot. Yeah. Of course, there are HSA options 
as well, health savings account options to help you pay for that, and flexible savings accounts that help you pay for your out-of-pocket costs. But what what's ended up happening is that employees now are realizing they need to think about the cost of the care they're accessing. One of the things the Affordable Care Act did was it said, okay, you know, if out-of-pocket costs are going to go up, we're still not going to make anyone pay out of their pocket for the basic health care that you need. So if you go to a, your primary care physician for your annual checkup, you don't have to pay for that. If you go for your colonoscopy screening, you don't have to pay out of pocket for that. So there's, if you're getting a flu shot, you don't have to pay. So there's certain... Well, those are included um, in your premiums, right? I mean, it's not that they're free. It's, so, it's, exactly. that, it's that that cost is rolled into your premium. It's not You're considered. not going to be paying a, a cost-sharing amount, yeah. a copay, right? For for that service. But if you've got strep um, throat, you've got to pay for, it. for your deductible. But if but if you but if you've got strep throat, you've got to pay for the visit to go see the physician, to then go buy the antibiotics and so forth, right? Exactly. So that so, that, that care exactly. is covered. So then, that, that care you're you're paying out of pocket in your deductible. Right. And that's where you're seeing, okay, well, listen, if I wait till Monday and I go to my primary care, it's only going to be a $20 copay. If I go to the emergency room over the weekend, it might be a $250 copay. If I go to the urgent care center that's freestanding, it might only be a $30 copay. What am I going to decide? And I'm going to use the New Hampshire cost website to find out where I can go if I've got a deductible that I'm going to be able to use my healthcare dollars the most efficiently. So let's say I need an MRI. I go on the New Hampshire health cost website and I find out that an MRI at X office is 400 bucks. Whereas if I go to the hospital MRI, it might be 2400 bucks. What am I going to do? So you see, you see a little bit more consumer driven healthcare. Right with these higher deductibles, but the problem is the information that the consumer has available around choices is limited. New Hampshire has one of the best health cost websites. We use our data very efficiently to give this information to the consumer, but it's still complicated, and it sure doesn't help you if you end up in emergency. Sure, but if it's an emergency, that's an appropriate use of the emergency room, as you were kind of discussing. To me, this is this is kind of the, if there is a a silver lining, it, it, it is that the consumer-driven element of it that incentives are being put in place such that consume you know healthcare consumers have some incentive to be aware of the costs of the care that they're accessing. Absolutely, uh, and that that um, is you know, that I could think- change the that could change the dynamic that we were talking about before. The prices, the cost of healthcare has not gone down, but if we all acted. As rather than just kind of going to wherever, we actually started consciously choosing to go to places that were the least expensive, uh, within a range at least. That that could that could actually help improve the actual total expenditures. Oh, absolutely! And health plans that have and employers who have really put in consumer-driven healthcare programs and really made it impactful to the employees, like there's a real cost differential and there's a real difference as to what they pay out of pocket or they get bonuses, they've seen millions of dollars of savings in their health plan. 
So that is an important change. You know, I would say that, you know, Medicare, for those on Medicare, that Medicare has also made some changes in its reimbursements. And, you know, that's another question. There's a lot. The hospitals took a fee cut and the physicians took a fee cut when the ACA was passed in exchange for this whole set of reforms and expanding coverage. So I can bet that they will put up a, a pretty big fight if, <laughs> if they're the ones who had to pay in <laughs> right. for the change and it gets unraveled. Um, I would say the drug companies have done probably the least in terms of um, pain <laughs> uh-huh. uh, put on the table because um, they were not regulated by the Affordable Care Act and neither were the medical device companies. They, there was a tax on the medical device suppliers. They're the ones who make, you know, the hip replacements and the crutches and everything. There was a tax put on them, but they they fought really hard against it being implemented. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's um, been another issue. So there's still a lot of, of cost in the healthcare system that hasn't been addressed, and there's all sorts of politics around um, those cost drivers as well. So we talked we talked a little bit about HSAs, health savings accounts, and that is in fact one of the one of the proposals from Mr. Trump. An HSA is kind of like an IRA. You get to contribute pre-tax dollars to that account, and then any expenditures you make out of the HSA are for for qualified health expenses are done with pre-tax dollars. And his proposal is to allow individuals to, to have access to that. That's not currently the case, right? We, you can't just get an HSA on your own, typically. Well, you can. Self-insured employers often do use HSAs okay. um, for some of their plans. Okay. But this would be um, something so separate think, from an employment arrangement is kind of how, I mean, it's kind of, a lot of these proposals exactly. are kind of vague and it's not 100% clear what that, what this all means, but, but you could, what, the way I conceive this is you could, I could as an individual go, rather than through my employer, but I could go out and buy one or, or set one up. Right. On my and own, the goal, possibly. exactly. And I think that, you know, the dream that, being espoused by these, this kind of solution is, hey, this helps those healthy people, right? right. Everybody gets, say, a contribution of twenty five hundred bucks to pay for health care. If you if you don't use it, you put it in your HSA and it's pre tax, and you can use it when you need it. If you do, you can use it to buy, you know, coverage. So, how different is this so, proposal from what we actually see? actually happening on a lot of the exchanges, a high deductible health plan? Well, so much of it will depend on whether there's still a mandate to okay. purchase coverage. Right. Um, because, again, you know, I, I hate to digress into this, but it's all about risk pool. Right. Right? I mean, the carriers are offering plans for people, and, and they base the cost of those plans based on the experience of the people in them. Right. Um, they have to pay the claim. And if they don't have enough people in them, paying premium uh, to cover the claims for those who are in the plans, then none of it works. Back to the so, death, death spiral again. Yeah, exactly. So the HSAs um, are, are a potentially great idea depending upon whether you have to use your tax credit or your you know, HSA fund to purchase coverage or not. Right. I mean, my understanding is typically HSAs are coupled with a high deductible health plan that you you, exactly. You're forced to do that as part of, but that's but that's also through an employer, and, and they could structure that however they however they want. Um, right. Well, let's. And New Hampshire is again a little different. We have sixty one percent of our 
citizens in New Hampshire have coverage, have health insurance through their employer. Yeah, you said that to me yesterday, and I was I was surprised. So you said 61% get it through an employer. I think you said 13% through Medicaid, 14% through Medicare, and then we still got 5% uninsured. Is that, that was yeah. that right? Exactly. Is, is New Hampshire and that was as of that was for 2015. 15. Okay. So, is that unusual? Is that a particularly high private rate percentage? It is. It is a high private rate percentage. Um, okay. And and then individuals, their 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 five percent of our population has uh, coverage, presumably through the marketplace, because they have individual. Oh, okay. Plans. So they're, they're not on it. That is that is yeah that is a high enrollment in employer sponsored health care in New Hampshire. So a couple of, let's look, maybe we can look at a couple of other points that he's got in his proposal. One of them is to allow full deduction of insurance premiums. So this would be part of the, this is going back to kind of part of the repeal and replace. Presumably we'd repeal the ACA and then we'd give you either a deduction and we were talking, you know, would it be a deduction or a credit? And of course there's a, you know, or, or it would be a refundable credit. And I mean, there's a bunch of kind of, things that are not clear from this simple, relatively simple statement. Right. It's unclear, and I think that's all going to come down to the to the details of how accessible is it to people, and is it actually enough to help them purchase insurance coverage? I mean, it would be, if you're wealthy, if you've got a good, in, high income, ha, making, making this uh, deductible could save you a lot of money. But if you're already not, like we were talking, some 40-plus percent of the American population don't pay any federal income tax as it is, making health insurance payments deductible wouldn't help them purchase health care. So there'd be no benefit to them. So the only way it would be beneficial is if they had a a refundable tax credit, in which case even if you had zero taxes due, you'd still get a a check in the mail. Exactly. And I guess the question is if you get the check in the mail and there's no mandate, or if you get in the check in the mail, even if there is a mandate, are you going to spend it on your health care? If you're poor enough that you're getting that check in the mail, you might turn around and use that check to pay the rent instead of health insurance. Exactly. And then when you have something happen in your family, you go to the emergency room and you get uncompensated care. And, and the hospital winds up eating that. To you. It, 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 the don't. hospital, exactly. It's that you cost. Have diabetes, it means you can't then purchase your any kind of uh, prescription drugs to help you get through issues, etc. So we're back where we were. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're they, you know, it's it's really unclear what they're going to couple these plans with yeah. um, to try and help make it work. Um, you know, interestingly, at the same time as all this is going on, we're seeing um, we're seeing a huge change in the delivery of care. So we've seen a huge number of hospital mergers happening on the delivery side. So big consolidation, and it's happening in New Hampshire as well. We have, you know, Mass General Hospital was just approved to take over uh, Wentworth Douglas um, in Dover. um, Right in my backyard. Affiliated with a number of hospitals um, down south. Uh, And we've seen, you know, a number of real bursts of hospital mergers in New Hampshire, essentially, presumably to help um, engage in some population health and help uh, a number uh, improve quality across a bigger data system, um, but at the same time, it's also to help them uh, resist pressure from payers and employers um, that might uh, impact their bottom line too substantially. On the on the, at the same time, you're seeing a real consolidation on the payer side. So we have a couple major 
insurance companies trying to merge with each other, Anthem right. and Cigna, um, and then United, and I think it's Humana. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, but that, um, and we've so, been seeing that for decades, though. I mean, it, it comes in fits and spurts, but I, I think we've well, been seeing that. Well, this is the biggest. This, I mean, okay. this could, if, if these all go through, we will have literally <laughs> yeah. uh, two or three insur- national insurance companies, yeah. insurance carriers. Well, speaking of national nationally based one of mr trump's proposals is allowing the sale of health insurance across state lines and we talked a little bit about that so what are what are your thoughts about that so what's the concept and then where where might that go wrong or what would be the problem with well you know the the, the concept is so wonderful in 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 um, <laughs> the idea which right. is hey i'm in new hampshire I'm going to go online. You know, I I I I'm, I own a small um, employer group, and I'm trying to find coverage. I'm going to be able to have bids from insurance carriers across the country, so that you know I can purchase the Texas plan if it's cheaper and gives the right benefits that my employees want, and I'm going to save a lot of money. You know, the the the, the health plans are also sort of interested in this you know concept a little bit because they see um, sail across state lines, what that really means to them is, hey, I can build one plan and I can sell it in every state and I don't have to meet all those state laws. So if New Hampshire requires certain notifications to my consumers about rights and remedies, if New Hampshire doesn't allow me to, as a health plan, to require pre-authorization for emergency medication, if New Hampshire requires coverage for women who've had babies for at least, you know, 48 hours in the hospital, I am free from all those requirements if I can be relieved of the state line. So I could potentially so, set up, I could set up a, a, a plan. So if I was, I was a health insurer, I'm not going to use anybody's name, but I, I use a, so Lucy and Mark's health insurance, we could set up in, say, Texas, and we would follow Texas's regulations, and then we would sell our plans wherever we could set them up, and we would just follow Texas's regulations. And if Texas, and we wouldn't have to listen, we wouldn't have to obey the, the regulations in the states where we're selling. So exactly, what could go wrong? I mean, that's the, that. that I mean, <laughs> I, again, I don't know, but that's part of the concept. Which okay. is, I mean. E- like, don't make it so that you can have one type of plan and sell yeah. it in every state yeah. and not have to meet the individual mandates from the various states. Now, on the other hand, what does that mean? Is the federal government going to say, hey, state, you no longer have the right to regulate insurance in your state. We're going to decide what goes, and a national insurance carrier can offer plans anywhere. That might be the case, or they might say, hey, states, by the way, you can't make a Texas plan meet your requirements, and yet your citizens can purchase it. Okay, that's, and, that's what you know, I was thinking If the of. Texas plan doesn't have any enough money to pay the claims, if the Texas plan isn't giving them their plan description, tough luck. But they would but, have, you know, I mean, I, I, I would conceive that they would have recourse in Texas. I mean, the problem would be that if I live in New Hampshire, I now have to maybe file suit in Texas, uh, right. right? I mean, that, that would be a complication. Yeah, or maybe the federal government takes on well, that's an more option, right? um, authority. And so, you know, again, I think that it's a really interesting question. The reality is that now you can purchase 
coverage in another state. You just may not get the network you want. There, There is the opportunity now to purchase coverage elsewhere. What there isn't is the opportunity to get out from under state regulation. And I know there is the argument that that will save a lot of costs. So, again, I think the I think the discussion there will be what authority do we want our state insurance regulators to have over yeah. insurance? What flexibility do we want the payers to have, the health plans to have in terms of offering anywhere? And what do consumers know enough? Do consumers, are consumers in a position and employers in a position to be able to make these kinds of decisions? And maybe they are. So I think that's going to be the issues that are discussed around that option. I mean, maybe they are. Maybe some are. But clearly there's going to be a percentage of people that really just rely on, you know, my friend my friend Joe told me that this is a good plan. And so that's why I bought it. Most consumers, you know, most cons- I would say most consumers probably don't really, really understand what their what their health plans got in it to begin with. I right. mean, we we buy it from right. our employer because we presume our employer has done the due diligence to make sure that it's a good enough plan. Right. Yeah. So okay. Well, all right. So let's see what else. We- so isn't this fun? We're going to get into <laughs> significant issues around state regulation versus federal regulation, individual decision-making and transparency and information around choice and plan versus employer groups versus health plans versus providers. So it's going to be a very interesting discussion. I mean, unfortunately, oftentimes with these policy changes, most people just end up seeing a change in their ability to access care and what they pay for it, and it's really hard to figure out why. Yeah. It's it's clearly complicated. The, it, the, you know, election rhetoric makes things sound very simple, but clearly, even if you're a fan of what Mr. Trump is proposing, there's a lot of second-order effects that are going to come along with this. And, and I completely agree. And I mean, you know, I think for every single legislator, including Donald Trump, I think one of the things that scares everyone is looking at that graph which shows the percentage of the US GDP spent on health care is higher than any industrialized country. I think. I think that's right. it. so seventeen yeah. percent of our GDP that we spend on health care and the outcomes that we produce are not as good as the countries who spend less. So our mortality is higher, our infant mortality is is higher. So I, I mean our mortality means we're we're dying at a at a at a younger age than in countries that spend less on their health care. And that's frustrating. Why? Start to move into the discussion about, you know, how much do we spend on social services in the countries yeah. that have the better health outcomes? They spend more on social services than they do, mm. than we do in proportion to what they spend on health care. You know, we don't. So, you know, that does get back to the question of, okay, if, if, Somebody lives in a house with lead paint so that their kids are having trouble in school and it's, you know, they've got asthma and there's no natural food stores near them, plus they can't afford it. You know, what, what happens to the health of, right. of those individuals? And, you know, we also have an aging population, especially in New Hampshire. And by virtue of an aging population, you're gonna, you're gonna spend more on, on healthcare. So, you know, it's really hard. Some of it is personal responsibility and some of it is circumstances, but we clearly don't have as good health outcomes as other countries that spend less on health care. Sure, right. I remember 
a briefing from the Army Surgeon General back when I was still in the military, and she was talking about the average military beneficiary accesses the health system five times a year for an average of 20 minutes at a time. If you, not counting, of course, the time you're waiting in the waiting room, but 20 minutes, you know, contact with a provider. So, so her, you know, her thing was, you know, we've got about a hundred minutes a year to influence the overall health of one of our beneficiaries. And, uh, exactly. and so the, her, her point was we need to do something more than a hundred minutes. We've got to figure out how we're going to influence the lifestyle choices of our beneficiaries as well. And that's a, I think is a big question to, to, that right. needs to be solved. Uh, and we're all working harder. We, you know, reading yeah. five trillion emails a day. And, there you go. That'll, know, that'll, that'll damage your health no matter know, what. <laughs> yeah, we can eliminate email that will all make us healthier. There we go. So let's close, Lucy. I, you know, what are your thoughts on where we're going? Well, you know, I want to be optimistic that all the hard work that's gone in to try and really change the paradigm of healthcare and try and make it more affordable and make it more accessible and improve the outcomes, that we can keep the successes and fix the problems. But that's going to take a lot of careful thinking and deliberation and good policy making. So we'll see. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with me today. As as always, I learn a lot whenever I get a chance to talk with you. Oh, well, you know, I love doing this, so let's do this again soon, and we'll see where we are in a few weeks. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.